everyone to Moms for America, the 5,000 year leap, 12 week uh, webinar seminar. We are so delighted to have you join us tonight. My name is Julene Jackson. I have been with Moms for America for 14 years. I served as a, their vice president for several years and then I kind of transitioned into their teacher, their, their senior teacher. And I think it's just because I'm the oldest one next to the founder of Moms for America, Kimberly Fletcher. Uh, who I think the organization was founded about 18, 19 years ago, and I have been with Moms for America for 14 years. I am here tonight with my sweetheart, Al. Hello. It's not often I get him uh, to teach with. Sometimes in the evenings I can rope, rope him in, and we love it because oftentimes when a man is teaching, we get, you know, the husbands and and uh, so forth of some of our Moms for America. So Al will be with us for 12 weeks. We are on travel right 12 now. Twelve weeks. Oh, yeah. Twelve weeks. Did you know the class? Is I 12? thought you said two weeks. All right. Okay. All right. There's twelve weeks. Right. Oh boy, he's gonna make me pay in many ways for for this big ask. We live in Washington D.C., just about twenty minutes from the White House, and but tonight we uh, Al is on uh, business here in Salt Lake City, Utah, and so I've come with him, and so. He, I'm going to do the intro this evening, and then he's going to teach kind of the bulk of our lesson, and then I, then he will have to leave. Typically, Al will always stay the full That's class true. and ask, you can ask him the hard questions, but he will um, not be with us the whole class this time. This is only the, this is the only time you've ever deserted me I, in I, class. I'm sorry. So. I'm so sorry. he's usually true and, and true and faithful. Hopefully you all have this book or you will get it. This is what we'll be studying. These 28 principles that literally changed the world. My name is Jolene Jackson. This is Al Jackson. Let me just introduce you to my family. Let's see the next slide, Hannah. We are parents of five children. We've actually had seven. We lost two little sons in infancy. They are my favorite, those two little boys in the heaven. These are our five very wild and alive children here. Actually, we're missing one boy. We, our oldest is 28, on down to the baby who is almost 16. One of our daughters is married there. And then one boy is missing. He's serving a church service mission. Bless his heart, he's got one more year of service in, in that regard. You will hear a lot about the children. They are our guinea pigs. Everything that we teach, we have tried out on our children. Let's see the next slide. So it was 14 years ago when we were living in a town uh -huh. called Hood River, Oregon. That was about 14 years ago. Our oldest was 13 years old, and we began to get very concerned about what was being taught in school systems. Now, imagine if we were concerned 14 years ago, how you are feeling today as you send your children and grandchildren off to uh, public schools or schools. And so uh, what happened is one of the mamas in this small town was watching Glenn Beck one day and he held up this book, The 5,000 Year Leap. And he said, women, you need to start uh, studying book groups and learn these principles and go home and teach them to your children. And we, a, a group of us mamas in town, were very concerned about what was being taught in the school system. So we began to meet once a month for about two hours. And we started to go through this book and, and, and learn these principles. And inevitably, we begin to go home and teach them to our children. Now, Al and I have had a, a tradition in our home where we have a little family devotional where we just study the scriptures with the kids. We'd read a little Bible story. We'd maybe, you know, learn a little poem. We'd sing a little gospel and pray, and we just have this little devotional. So as I began to learn these principles of liberty and these stories and miracles of America, I began to weave them into our family devotional. Now, at first, Al thought I was like a, turning into a right-wing nut because I was, you know, introducing, uh, I don't know, politics. What did you think of? What did you think? I, I wouldn't know, didn't know what to think, but I, I, it, it, it didn't take long for me to catch on. Uh, Al's heart was pricked, <clears throat> and uh, he began to teach right along with me, and we began to take classes from the Thomas Jefferson Center uh, about, uh, you know, various aspects of the Constitution, American history. Let's see the next slide. And Al decided to put his money where his mouth was, and he ran for the state Senate. We had moved back to Utah. He won. He served uh, nobly there. And that was a, a great example to our children that as you learn these principles of freedom and liberty, then you're compelled to want to go and do something. And hopefully that will, will be what happens as you continue through the next 12 weeks and learn you know, these beautiful uh, principles that truly changed America. And so I um, just want to thank, first of all, uh, Hannah in uh, New Mexico tonight and Lauren 
uh, coming from um, Branson, Missouri. They're behind the scenes making it all happen. Um, might you put your uh, town and the state that you're from, and if you have any questions throughout the class, they will be providing links and will be, be able to answer anything. And we can certainly answer any questions at the end of class as well. Now, I'm pretty sure that you would not be here tonight if you were not concerned about the direction of our country. Well, boy, we're especially concerned right now as it, as it, uh, it appears that Israel is at war with uh, Hamas or wh whoever these entities are that, that have been behind these attacks. And uh, we're worried. I, I, Cleon Skousen, who wrote The 5,000 Year Leap, said, prophecy is the mold from which history will be poured. So if you want to know exactly, you know, we know that Israel is going to be a, 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 a pivotal point in end times. And so I would recommend studying prophecy to, to put your heart at ease and to know what, what we can do, to, you know, to shore up our families and our communities as it looks like, you know, the world is, is feeling quite unsettled, wondering if we're going to move into a, a World War III. I'm hearing people, you know, with anger and shock and, and nervousness. So I would recommend turn to prophecy, study Jeremiah and Isaiah and and uh, the New Testaments and judges and and so forth. We know that Israel will be significant to biblical uh, end time prophecies. And so um, also, I think you wouldn't be here if you weren't concerned about your rising generations, your children and your grandchildren. It seems like young people nowadays don't seem to love America. And look, if we're going to raise up this next generation of patriots, we've got to know and revere and and understand the constitution and our founding fathers and those great miracle stories of America. So our children will love America. You know, we just celebrated Columbus Day in Washington, DC. Columbus Day yeah. is- Didn't hear anything about it. Uh, it's been completely wiped out. We don't even talk about it anymore. I hope you know the true story of Christopher Columbus, how, you know, God appeared to him as a young boy and said, you know, take, take me to the new world. And Christopher considered his name Christopher as a Christ bearer. And as you go throughout museums, we have seen pictures in museums of Christopher Columbus with like an angel or a God on his shoulder. And he was not out to, you know, amass gold and silver to find trade routes as other explorers of that day were. He was going to be obedient to this, you know, heavenly man manifestation that he had to go and take God to other, other sheep, which are not out of this fold. He actually fold. had a Hebrew interpreters on the boats with him and why was that because he was looking for the lost tribes of, of israel the other and three. there's three three boats were they the nina the penta the Santa Santa maria, maria the father the son and the holy ghost yeah, yeah. so i hope you're you're teaching your children and your grandchildren these stories because they're not going to if anything they're going to hear that christopher columbus was a genocidal terrorist that wiped out civilizations and so you need to know that he was very inspired and god led him to ultimately the discovery of the North Americas and, and ultimately to the establishment of, of America. And so you need to know these stories and we teach these stories in the Healing of America seminars. And, and I will tell you more about the Healing of America seminars, but if you go and they're all recorded online in seminar one, section one, we teach the true story of Christopher Columbus if you need to kind of bone up on it. And it might give you all kinds of resources that you can go to to learn these stories so you can teach the truth to your children. And so, you know, I always say, look, we can't teach something that we don't know. And so these 28 principles are, uh, our founding father said, are vital to understanding and perpetuating and preserving what they gave us for all those that desire peace, prosperity, and freedom. I love these 28 principles. I mean, I consider them like my, my dear friends and I really would encourage you, thank you, Hannah, to memorize them, get, get the book. And if you go to the um, National Center for Constitutional Studies, Studies and we'll put the link in, in there. You can, for $5, you can get a hundred of these little bookmarks. And I have just put them in all of our books and I, I would have memorized the 28 principles and they will rise up and bless you. I promise you in your hour of need. As you memorize these principles, you will speak with greater authority because these principles are universal and they transcend party and politics and they allow you to speak 
from a greater position of strength instead of just emotion and anxiety that you see so many conversations of being surrounded around. So as you speak on principle, it elevates the tone of conversations that you'll have with family members or neighbors or school teachers. So let's see the next slide. What I would really recommend is getting the student edition version of the 5,000 year leap. And we'll put the link, you can buy this on our store as well, where you fill in the blanks because studies show that when you use a multi-sensory experience for learning, when you, when you have to see something and you have to hear it and you have to write it and you can touch it, you actually retain what you're learning better. And if you use cursive as you write, it does something to the brain, you retain it better. And that's why it's such a shame that they're not really teaching cursive to our children anymore. So this 5,000 year leap book was the very first book that we studied in our little study group in Oregon. And uh, it's a funny little name, the 5,000 year leap. But the whole premise is that from the beginning of history until really the founding of America, human civilization made really relatively small progress for the for the general mass of humanity. And it wasn't really until around the 1500s uh, when Jamestown and, and, you know, the little colonies in Plymouth uh, began to experiment on freedom of owning your labor, of being given land. Did you really see this experimentation on freedom unleash, you know, the imagination and creativity and, and, and um, ingenuity and, and so forth? And under these principles of liberty, of kind of a free enterprise system, uh, that that ultimately took about 180 years from the time uh, the settlers came in J to Jamestown. What was it? 16, 1607. 1607 in Plymouth, 1620. <laughs> that when the Constitution was written in 1787, it was less than 200 years, literally, that we progressed to putting a man on the moon. I mean, we made more progress in 200 years living under those principles of liberty and freedom in the Constitution than we had made in the previous 5,000 years. For 5,000 years, men basically were using the same, let's see the next um, slide, the ox and the plow and, you know, we, weaving their clothes uh, on a will. And under these principles of freedom and liberty that were made available first to all in America and then spilled over into uh, the world, did we see these kind of advances? So we're going to study tonight in this book. We're not. We're going to get into the principles next week. We're studying the introduction and part one um, tonight. Uh, let's see the next slide there. Cleon Skousen, I think that is the slide we have. Is is the author of the five thousand year leap? And I think I see his daughter Sharon on the class tonight. Oh, Sharon! I hope at the end of class will come off and, and we can chat with you. But Cleon Skousen was, uh, he died 18 years ago in 2006, but he's a, a was a well-known teacher and lecturer, scholar, author, has written over 40 books, many on the bestseller. He worked uh, um, with um, J. Edgar Hoover for uh, many years at the FBI. He was chief of police, uh, uh, and a lecturer and, and university professor. He would, um, let's see the next slide. He wrote the Healing of America seminars and those seminars, it's, uh, it's four books, and there are four one-hour classes per each book. So it's a 16-week seminar, and all these classes are free and online. I would really recommend going through these Healing of America seminars. Um, it is what really gave me the bedrock understanding of how God's hand was in the establishment of America. And then we break down the Constitution from the viewpoint of the Founding Fathers. And then we talk about why America seems unhinged today how the enemies of freedom have really been under attack for the last hundred years. And then what we can do to restore our homes, our communities, the constitution in this nation. Cleon Skousen truly was a friend to popes and to presidents. And, you know, he writes in such an understandable and interesting style. I think this is what made him such a popular educator and author. Okay, so let's see our next slide. So let's go to our introduction here. So for for uh, centuries, there's there have been colonies of civilized human beings, as civilizations that have emerged, but then they have disappeared after a few centuries. And why weren't they able to maintain, you know, what they had? I just recently, about five days ago, came back from Portugal here, and me and two girlfriends went on a research trip to study all the sites of the Knights of the Templars. 
throughout Portugal, they were the first Templar nation. And Templars were the protectors of the temple knowledge from the temple of King Solomon. So they were godly men. The first 20 uh, kings of Portugal were Templar men. But as they began to become more corrupted, they couldn't maintain what they had. And in fact, Portugal lived under a dictatorship until 1974. Let's see the next slide. Al and I, a few years ago, went to um, Egypt. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they had such amazing technological advances. They were doing surgery on the hieroglyphics. You could see they figured out eye surgery and uh, contraceptions and, you know, the abacus. And look, they knew how to, you know, build the Great Pyramids and, and the Sphinx and the Temple. But yet as they turned to idol worship and multiple gods and slavery, now if you go to, to Egypt now, what did it look it's like? It's pretty it's bad. It's third world. Cairo it looks like a bombed out third world country. And this is what it had been when they were true to their God. So nations have not been able to hang on, you know, to, to some of um, uh, their findings and their advancements. So it wasn't until 16, let's see the next slide, until 1607, as we talked about with Jamestown and then um, Plymouth, that, you know, they came over on boats and used tools that were just slightly improved from some of these uh, previous, you know, civilizations, great civilizations of Egypt and Greece and China. But what began to happen is they began to experiment. They started out with secular communism and spiritual communism where all their labors kind of went into the big pool and they, they, were, they didn't do so well. And so one of the first um, uh, governors of the colonies in Plymouth, um, William Bradford, began to give everyone land. And, uh, and that's when ingenuity began to thrive, when they experimented on freedom. And then you see the descendants of these settlers along that eastern seaboard about 100, 180 years later. We have a Jefferson and a James Madison and a George Washington and a George Mason. And they all, they were some of the most foremost intellects who began to structure now living under these principles of you know, freedom, so to speak, structure a framework for this new civilization that um, produced what we now know as the United States of America. And so 200 years later, we see, let's see the next slide, we see all kinds of advancements and the spirit of freedom, which moved across the world in the 1800s, was primarily inspired by the fruits of freedom in the United States. And we saw the inventions and technological discoveries within the last 200 years as we harnessed electricity and jet propulsion and, and you know space vehicles and the communication we went from a, the telegraph to the telephone to the radio to the tv to now the worldwide you know web and exploration from pole to pole and and man walking on the moon and and the life um, span of man has doubled now as we have transportation literacy, high literacy rates all throughout the world. And that just transpired within the time the constitution was written to now, that was about 236 years. So, you know, before I turn it over to Al, let's see the next slide. What has had, what has happened? These 28 principles that literally changed the world. It says here in this introduction, how it, we've reversed in some regards when it comes to the physical science, science, uh, science, uh, we have capitalized on the lessons of the past, but the social sciences, we seem to be making the same mistake that some of these great ancient civilizations that ultimately collapsed are making as we're kind of uh, replicating this moral free fall as we're getting involved in muddling our lives again in drugs and riots and crimes and, uh, you know, uh, devious sexual practices and uh, weak marriages and debt-ridden prosperity. And, and so these are the same elements that caused some of these great civilizations of the past to fall. And, uh, and so look, the goal in life is to travel more, to have, you know, faster cars or more swimming pools in our backyards. Ultimately, man just wants to be happy, but it takes a, a certain kind of environment, an environment of maximum freedom and an environment to be able to worship the way you want to really truly be happy. And that requires us returning back to the fundamentals, getting back to the principles uh, that, you know, where we saw so much prosperity mm -hmm. and happiness and 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 so these 28 principles ultimately you'll discover over the next uh, 12 weeks 11 weeks are, are are things that we want to return back to and 
as we present these ideas really in, in their most simple way and mostly in the, the words of the founding fathers, we will use a lot of their quotes to explain what these principles were that they used to establish America. So I'm going to turn it over now to Al and he's gonna talk about something that really had never been done before in modern times, uh, forming and structuring a government with all power in the people. Okay, Julian, thank you. You're very welcome. well done. Very, very well done. Oh, thank you. Here. So as I speak tonight, it would be great if you all would be thinking in terms of how does this relate to today? Because the, the, the formula that the founders gave us really worked. What is that quote within how many years after the Constitution was written, we had 6% of the world's population, but we were creating 50% of the world's wealth. Was that less than 100 years? Yeah, within 100 years. Within 100 years. So Jalene did a beautiful job of setting this up. So I want to put this screen up first. You've got Hamilton on the far right. Next to him is James Madison in the middle, George Washington. James Madison was considered the father of the Constitution. George Washington, the father of our country. There is John Adams there. He and his cousin Sam Adams were from Boston. Ben Franklin, who played an instrumental role in our founding of our country, Philadelphia. But then you've got these great men in Virginia that Julian talked about, and there's Thomas Jefferson here. And it wasn't by happenstance that all these men in Virginia ended up at the same place at the same time. And Virginia really led out with regard to the Declaration of Independence, as you can see, Jefferson, who wrote it, and then the Constitution, Jefferson had a hand in that, and James Madison took a lot of Jefferson's writings and, and tutelage and formed the great document that we live under today. And it's interesting to note that these men came from disparate backgrounds, different levels of education, but the strength that they had was the values, they had common values. And I think Jolene's gonna talk a little bit about that later, but let's, let's get into what these men did in terms of creating this government. So right now we make the mistake of judging government based on political parties. You've got the donkey on the left and you've got the elephant on the right. And we measure government by political powers. But one thing that I want to stress this this evening is the fact that the definition of government is a system of ruling and controlling. Please write that down in your notes. Government is a system of ruling and controlling. So the founder said, this is not the way to measure government. The way to measure government is by political power, not political parties. So they came up with how do we find the right government that's in the balance center where you've got the people are in power, people's law. And the two extremes you want to avoid is not fascism on the right and communism on the left. That was how we defined government back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then today it's the left versus the right. No, the founder said the two extremes that you want to avoid because they were students of history was tyranny and anarchy. And what's tyranny? Tyranny is when you've got, you're ruled by one person or a few people. And anarchy is when there's no government. So the genius that the founders were looking for was what can we do to find a government that's in the balance center where there's enough government to protect the rights of the people but not too much government to abuse the people. That's the genius that the founders were looking to create. So let's talk about ruler's law. One of my favorite actors in history is Yul Brenner, mm -hmm. And we've all seen the 10 commandments. I watch it every Easter. I love that show. But let's talk about some of the characteristics of ruler's law. We rule by the divine right of Kings back in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, and 1500s, and so forth, they came in with sword in hand, conquered whoever was in power, and said we would not have won if it had not been for the power of the Almighty. So we rule by the divine right of kings. So they, it's not power from the people, 
It's those individuals who came in and conquered. All power is concentrated in the ruler or a special ruling class of elites. So think about what's going on today. It's the elites, it's the political power and, and, and a few people that are telling us what to eat. They're telling us what vaccines to take. They're telling us what education you have, how much land you can own. Can you buy this house? What kind of job you have? It's the elites that want to direct everything. There's no, freedom is never an answer to anything. And so all power is concentrated in a few people. And we're seeing that today. So when you think about the US Constitution, we know there's seven articles in the Constitution and there were 27 amendments. The founders gave us the first 10th, the Bill of Rights, and then later on by 1804, Amendments 11 and Amendments 12. And then from the mid 1860s until now, we've added all those amendments up to 27. And so the premise behind the Constitution is based on this statement that I'm going to regurgitate to you now by Thomas Jefferson. He said, let no more be said of confidence in men, but bind him down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. The founders did not trust themselves and they didn't trust man because they've studied men. They, we have an inherent desire within us for power. We want nobody over us telling us what to do but we want control over folks that are beneath us. And so the key premise behind the constitution is dividing power among many, three branches of government. The states were there to protect the people from a runaway federal government. The constitution, we'll get into this as we talk about these 28 principles, was really designed to protect the family. The constitution was designed to protect the family. The founders didn't trust government. We don't trust government today. We don't know what, we don't, we don't know where to find truth these days in terms of we can't count on the media. They used to do a good job of pointing out when things were not going so well, but they're they're all in on the fix as well. And so we really have to have these principles written in our minds and our hearts and holy writ also so we can discern truth from error. People have no inalienable rights. We see our rights dwindling each and every day. And we can think about some of the things that are going on. Think about parents who, who just want to be involved in what's going on in the classroom and what's happening at the local school board level. It's unconscionable. But the good news is parents are waking up. The great news is you all are on this class today, as Jelaine highlighted, to learn more. We're going to learn together. The people are structured into social and economic units. Do, do we see that happening today? There is, a, there is a growing divide between the haves and the have-nots. I don't know how average people are making it today. People who are, when we go into the Starbucks or we go into McDonald's, how are they making ends meet? We're in Utah now. Gas is $4 a gallon. Almost five. It's yeah. Almost, yeah, and five for diesel. I mean, it's, it's really, it's ridiculous right now with the high inflation. And, and it's due in large part because we've gotten away from those principles. Power has gone from we the people and it's been concentrated in Washington, DC and the, the ruling class is directing everything. And it's a problem. Problems are always solved by issuing new edicts, creating more bureaus, making government bigger, bigger and bigger. And guess who has to pay the bill? It's us through taxes. It's immoral how much we are taxed today. I wanna to say almost 50% of our income is taxed today. And then, as I said before, freedom is not considered a solution to anything. So let's go back in history and learn about the Anglo-Saxons. Thomas Jefferson discovered this group of people and they lived a lot of the principles that are found in our constitution. So here are the Anglo-Saxons. They came from around the Black Sea in the first century and they spread across Northern Europe, but they started in England. Julian knows way more about the Anglo-Saxons than I do, mm -hmm. but they were the best organized and governed people of the day. And we'll talk about some of the principles that they adhere to. Very similar to what happened in ancient Israel. We'll talk about the story of Moses and Jethro. Jefferson studied the Anglo-Saxons in their own language. He actually 
five languages, I want to say. Mm -hmm. Five languages, and he could read Anglo-Saxon, so that's six. This man, very learned and wise. Okay, so let's talk about some of the things. Anglo-Saxons considered themselves a commonwealth of free men. They organized themselves into identical units to the ancient Israelites. Captains of 10 was called a tithing man. 50 families organized was called the vill man or head of the village. You've got the hundred man was in was over hundred families. And the beautiful thing about these individuals that were called the tithing man and the vill man and the hundred man, they're all elected by the people. The families got together and decided we like this individual to be our leader. So they're divided up in the families of tens, fifties, and thousands. And that's where we get the term sheriff from because the Earl and the territory was called a Shire. So the Earl was called the Shire Reef or the Sheriff. So you can see where we get some of our vocabulary today. All laws as well as leaders had to be by common consent. So the, the, the beauty that the founders were looking for is that pyramid in the middle where all power is in the people. So you've got the family and the individual at the bottom that are directing things above them. That's why you have it right in the middle of people's law. When you go over to the upside down pyramid, you've got all power in the ruler. So the national government is directing everything down and look what happens to the family and the individual. Their rights become smaller and smaller and smaller until we, we start to look to DC to solve all of our problems and they're just not equipped to do it. They're not equipped to do it. That's why going back to what Jefferson said, power needs to be divided and separated among different levels that way it's not concentrated into a tyrannical government that's what the founders wanted to avoid charlton heston jethro moses the, the israelite children are free they're in the desert moses is sitting in council with everybody all day long jethro goes to him in the evening says bro what are you doing your, your wife and kids are hanging out in my tent, eating up all my food because you're too busy seeing to the people's problems. You are making a mistake, Moses. You need, you need to divide the families up into tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and let the smaller issues and problems be taken care of where the problem originates and you handle all the big stuff. So let's talk about people's law under Moses. Powers distributed among the many. Self-government. So your homework assignment for tonight is to go back to Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 26. So you've got here in 1826, the hard cases they brought to Moses. But every small matter, they judged themselves. That's why they wanted the people to be moral. Self-government and morality go hand in hand. And if you're a moral people, then you can handle solving problems at the local level. Leaders were elected. New laws were approved by the common consent of the people. Moses didn't choose all the leaders. Now he endorsed them all, but it was those families that got together and chose who their leaders would be. So let's talk about some of the fundamentals of people's law. We talked about strong commitment to morality. Ben Franklin said this, and you can see this today. Just think about this statement. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. And the masters he's referring to are laws. You go to the state legislature. I was in the state legislature in Utah. We passed so many bills. We wanted to just control everybody's behavior. Less was never more. It was more and more. It was a race to see who could pass the most bills. Under people's law, the people were organized into small manageable units where local, where problems are solved at the local level where they originate. Strong local government is the key to preserving freedom. It's the key to preserving freedom. It resonates with everyone. I, I had an opportunity to speak, it was during COVID, to a group of millennials, young millennials, African-American, Spanish. I mean, they, they, it was a very diverse group. And when I talked about this principle, because they wanted to know, how do we fix this mess? Things are not right. How do we fix this? 
And then I told him, I said, hey, don't, wouldn't you want to be involved in making decisions at the local level to th that, that you are involved in? And, and the answer is yes. We want to be empowered to solve our own problems. Young people today have a strong sense of justice. And so they want to be able to make those decisions. And so that resonates. It, it transcends party, as Jalene talked about so beautifully. It transcends party, these principles. The rights of property are protected. The main thrust of government was from the people upward. And only in times of a temporary crisis like war was the government thrust downward. And the government was, to cry, was required to operate according to the principles of law, not the whims of men. Did we see that during COVID where, where the governors and the mayors just made laws arbitrarily and people got in line like sheep because they didn't know their rights? All these edicts and so forth. So the founders struggled to establish people's law in the balance center. Fellows paper number nine, Alexander Hamilton talked about history. And this, this picture here depicts the French Revolution. So you've got a king or a queen, they become corrupt. The people rise up, they go after the king and the queen and they kill them, remove them. Then what happens? Anarchy. Then somebody like Napoleon comes up and says, hey, I'll bring order to this, to the, to this country, but you gotta make me king if I do. They said, okay, we'll sign up for that because blood and terror, we don't want that. So yes, we'll do that. Napoleon becomes king. Eventually he comes corrupt. So it's a swinging pendulum back and forth between tyranny and anarchy. And the founders, how do we stop that pendulum in the balance center where the people are in charge? So the two extremes you wanna avoid is not left and right, it's tyranny on the left, anarchy on the right. That's the beauty of the constitution. And Franklin said this, and I know you all can, res this resonates because we're seeing it today. There is a natural inclination in a mankind to kingly government. He said it gives people the illusion that somehow a king will establish equality among the citizens and that they like. How often do we see a politician? I'm going to equal things out. We're going to talk about equity. We're going to talk about equality. I'm going to take people vote for that. No, it's freedom. It's freedom that, that, that keeps us where we want to go. Okay, the founders, the first constitution they wrote was the Articles of Confederation. It almost actually caused us to lose the Revolutionary War because it was written in November 15, 1777. They thought they could write it over the weekend, whip it off, we'd have a constitution, but they, they neglected to have two things involved. No executive, no judiciary, no enforcement power. George Washington and Valley Forge in Morristown losing 2,000 soldiers and each winter is because of the Articles of Confederation because there was no enforcement power to get these states to send their assigned assessments to the army to sustain them. And in order for them to make a decision, all the states had to agree before they move forward. That, that, that did not work at all. It was, it was closer to anarchy. So let's talk briefly about the Constitutional Convention. How am I doing on time? So, so good. Okay, okay, of 1787. Conditions at the time were not ideal. So as I go through these conditions, think about what's going on today as they wrote the constitution. States were bitterly divided. The continental dollar was inflated. Hmm. Depressed economy. Did, did any of this resonating? Rioting. England and Spain, at the time the constitution was written, wouldn't leave. England was in the North near Canada. Spain was in the South waiting for the government to collapse so they could come back in and swoop it up. But you can see from those bullet points, brothers and sisters, the same conditions existed then that are today and the constitution fixed them. They had this procedure during the convention where they discussed things where it was called the committee of the whole, which encouraged discussion and consensus. So they held these meetings in secret because they didn't want the public influencing what was going on within those walls because they wanted people to have the freedom to change their minds, change their opinions. So one person comes up with a good idea and you're like, hmm, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about James Wilson and Edmund Randolph. How, how many 
How many presidents do you want? James Wilson says from Pennsylvania, we need one strong executive, one president. Edmund stands up and goes, wait a minute. That's just what we had with King George. We don't want to do that. We don't want a king. We need three presidents, one for the North, one for the middle states, and one for the southern states. And then James Wilson gets up and says, wait a minute. Do you remember the 30 tyrants of Greece or the two councils of Rome? We don't want to make those mistakes. We need one strong executive, limited as an authority, but with fixed responsibility, no buck passing. Edmund Randolph thinks about it and goes, you know, James, you're right. That's why they voted 60 times in the convention how they were going to vote for a president, 60 times. It was about consensus and general agreement. They talked it out. It wasn't a 215 to 214 vote in the House of Representatives for a piece of legislation to come out. It was a deliberative process. And when you, when you have to have consensus, guess what? Instead of dealing with these issues, you're dealing with just a few because you're because the and the rest of the issues are handled by the state and local government. So one thing I would love, I, I really want to emphasize this: the Congress was not a conglomerate of compromises. These men, four and a half months, brainstorming session after brainstorming session, there was only three compromises. And that's when you give up something that you really don't want to to compromise to get something else. Three compromises only save slavery proportionate representation, and the regulation of commerce. The Constitution, consensus, general agreement. Okay, bang, I'm out. <laughs> Back to you, Jelani. Oh, I could all just right. listen to you all night, honey. That was really good. I can't. I, these people, they're getting <laughs> nauseous already. Are we doing okay? Is everybody with us? Good, good. Please come back every week. I'm telling you, it's going to get better. All right. I have to go earn a living. So I have to go. I'm going to turn it over to Jeline to take you home. I'll see you all next week. God bless you. Thank you, sweetheart. Thank you so much. Hey, let's maybe put up that next slide of, uh, about the three-headed eagle. Oh, actually, actually, that was Al's slide. Well, anyways, the three-headed eagle. Let's see the next slide, Trussie, is in, in the book. and. Um, and so Steve Scalise just quit the race for House Speaker. Steve, oh, so does that mean probably Jim Jordan? Jordan Jim yeah. Jordan will be the new speaker. Maybe yeah. probably has. Oh gosh, we were just in his office, Moms for America. I was uh, about three weeks ago. We like him. So, anyways, in the book, they have this representation of a three-headed eagle, and you know our founding fathers studied Polybius. What's his name? Polybius. Polybius. Olivia's and John Locke and Montesquieu and and all these men they had advocated for uh, governmental functions in three departments the legislative the executive and the judicial we, we won't go quite to these quotes yet Tressie we can just do whole screen me for a moment but um it but they weren't able to really maintain these three separate branches and, and it wasn't until our founding fathers came along that they were able to structure it and kind of this diagram shows this three-headed eagle that you saw in uh, just a moment ago but if you have your books it's in, in your books where the central head of the eagle i wish it was up so you could look at it while i'm talking uh, represented the lawmaking or the legislative function and that that middle eagle has two eyes to represent the house and the senate and that they both they both should see eye to eye on pieces of legislation before it becomes a law. And then the second head of the three-headed eagle was the executive branch, centered, you know, with a single strong president operating within clearly defined uh, framework of limited power. And then the third head was the judiciary, which assigned the task by sweetie of um, acting as a guardian of the Constitution and interpreting the principles that were dis originally designed by the founders. Now, the genius of this three-headed eagle was not only the separation of powers, but the fact that the three heads all shared a single neck, which meant that the founders carefully integrated the three departments so each could coordinate with each other, but they could function independently. And it was really ingeniously structured uh, sort of pattern. That, that it could be described as coordination without consolidation. That is what checks and balances were to be. And then this, this um, three-headed eagle has 
two wings, the wing of compassion, which is the problem-solving wing, which represents the House of Representatives. They're only in every two years. They want to solve problems so they can, you know, keep being re-elected. And, and then the other wing, the wing of conservation is called, in which, um, you know, the senators, so to speak, are asking, well, wait a minute. I mean, does this infringe upon the rights of the states? Does this infringe upon our freedoms? Can we afford it? So the wing of conservation was kind of, you know, let cooler heads prevail sort of thing. And so let's see that next slide, some of these quotes from Thomas Jefferson, where he describes, we need both wings, the wing of conservation and the wing of problem solving. And he said, let's see, Hannah, if we can see that, uh, those quotes from Jefferson. He said, look, we have been called by different names. Uh, brethren, let's see the, the, the previous one. Let's go back to that first slide. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we have been called by different names, brethren, of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. He said, we, 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 need, we need both in the party. And then he talks about, however, the problem of, of political extremists. And, and, you know, do we see that today? You know, someone just said, I think it's extreme to have a, a member of Congress have a Hamas flag outside of her office. And I dare say, you know, some people might think, uh, you know, what um, Matt Gates did to, uh, to kick out the Speaker of the House recently, uh, collude with eight other uh, Republicans and all the Democrats you know, they might think that's extreme. Some people think the Freedom Caucus is extreme. I don't, I don't think they are. If you look for, uh, it's 45 members out of 435 members in the House of Representatives. What do those Freedom Caucus members stand for? Well, they stand for the Constitution. I don't think that's what Thomas Jeff Jefferson was meaning about, you know, political extremists. To, he said in his, in his case, in his quote, to appoint a monarchist, to conduct the affairs of a real public is like appointing an atheist to the priesthood. As to the real Federalists, I take them to be my bosom brothers, not extremists. I view them as honest men and friends to present the Constitution. I think our founding fathers would be disappointed to see how the executive branch has become big and bloated and like the most powerful office in the world. They wanted these, uh, you know, separation of power to, to check and balance each other. And we see some of these extreme factions and even leadership within the House, uh, within Congress, you know, oftentimes they're doing their business behind closed doors, kind of circumventing uh, the voice of the people through the other members of Congress. So uh, Thomas Jefferson also said, if we can prevent the government when it comes to warning us about this collective uh, drift towards the left, and we're seeing that towards more... Uh, tyrannical rule, ruler's law, please take care of us kind of thing. He said, Thomas Jefferson, if we can prevent the government from wasting the labors of the people under the pretense of taking care of them, they will truly become happy. Didn't we see this during COVID, you know, this propensity just to, to do what the government told us to do, to wait for them to solve our problems and to establish programs to take care of us. And, uh, and, and this is dangerous. Um, Thomas Jefferson also talked about, let's see that next uh, slide, about, um, oh, he said it's immoral for one generation. Actually, I'm sorry, I think the quote in that previous slide said, if we can prevent the government from wasting the labors of the people under the pretense of taking care of them, they must be happy. I think I read that. And then he warned about, let's go to that next slide. Trustee, they warned, he warned about, you know, how, ultimately, if the government's going to take care of us, they have to raise the funds. So they raised taxes on us. And he said, it is immoral for one generation to pass on the results of its extravagance in the form of debts to the next generation. We shall all consider ourselves unauthorized to saddle posterity with our debts and morally bound to pay them for ourselves. So in order to prevent this from happening, he said, Thomas Jefferson, we need an enlightened electorate. And, and this is one of the principles of the 28 principles, and we'll talk about that uh, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. And I think that's why you, know, you are here tonight and we'll keep uh, coming and learning together that, you know, if we hope to save this country and perpetuate it and have it be 
what we want it to be for our rising generations, we've got to be about being able to explain it and to defend it. And, and scripture tells us, my people perish for lack of knowledge. So we've got to be a learned elect Torah, is what Thomas Jefferson said. Okay, let's see the very next slide. Um, and lastly, I'll talk a little bit about this. You know, the founders common denominator was their basic beliefs. They were a diverse group. We had farmers, we had uh, wealthy landowners. I mean, you know, we had men that uh, live on the edge of the wilderness and we had, you know, very sophisticated uh, uh, presidents of universities. Um, and they talk differently, you know, the Southern drawls of the South or the, the kind of clips staccato of the Yankees. But um, yet they were able to do what they did because of their shared beliefs. Uh, they were uh, their remarkable unanimity in fundamental beliefs. They were all studying and reading out of the same books. They were studying the great thinkers of Cicero and Thomas Hooker and Montesquieu and Blackstone and John Locke and and Thomas uh, uh, John Adams and and they were very careful students, our founding fathers of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And even though some of them didn't belong to uh, you know any Christian denomination, the teachings of Jesus were respected and admired. So when we say that this nation was founded on uh, Judeo-Christian values, the founders they had this shared belief of morals of this kind of common ground of the old and new Testament and this Jewish and Christian scripture. They, they revered and, and respected that. So today, you know, we're hearing almost on a continuous loop cycle that the strength of America is our diversity, you know, and, and um, our, th this whole idea that we can all be different, but we should all be equal and we should include everybody. We're just, you know, we're getting away from this concept that our strength came from our shared values, not, you know, the diversity of circumstances, which, which we brought to the table. So I feel like our young people and, and all ages uh, are, we're, we're overdosing on this idea of our strength comes from diversity, that it's okay for everyone to think whatever they want and that you know we are going to affirm everyone's ideas or beliefs and there's really no right or wrong i think of our, our who is one of the supreme court justices that uh, won't even say what a woman is we're just trying to be so affirming of everyone and you know god says when my people lack vision they perish and all this acceptance and diversity talk is making are thinking cloudy and i mean goodness sakes our young people what mental health crisis are at a all-time high it is our shared values of our founding fathers is what what brought strength to this new nation it was their shared convictions and their beliefs and yes you know they went back back and forth feverishly during that constitutional convention but they never disputed what their you know final objectives and con convictions were they might have had differences of opinions about how to implement it but they all were reading out of the same books and that is what we need to do. We need to get back to some of these founding principles. We need to interject, you know, God back into the game, so to speak. And, and because they were students of, of scripture. And as you, as you read, you know, some of these um, sacred founding documents, you can see how they embedded in God's law and natural law uh, that they pulled from ancient writ and embedded it in the constitution. And we're gonna go through over the next 11 weeks and show you exactly uh, how they did that and what that looks like. And, and because of that, you know, within a hundred years of our formation, we were just, we were a model to the world. We were a light on the hill. And our founding fathers wanted our constitution to be our greatest export because uh, when America does well, all ships rise. You know, when, when we're founded in natural law, in godly law, and we look to the heavens to guide us and to, to determine, um, you know, how we treat one another, uh, it raises the, the level uh, and, and lifestyle around the world. And we, we saw that. And so what I want to admonish you to do now, we have covered 33 pages in one hour. So your homework when you go back and reread, if you would, uh, the introduction and part one, it's going to be more meaningful to you. And then next week we will start on principle one and two. 
principle one, two, three, and four are so foundational. I go back to those principles. I love all these uh, 28 principles, but um, read if you can, go back and reread. They say if you will re, uh, you learn something and if you'll go back and review your notes or reread it, it within a 48 hour period, your retention rate goes up uh, almost, I think it's seven times. We'd have Sharon Cray on the phone. You can, you can on the, on the class, you can confirm that Sharon at the end. So I would recommend to go back and reread what we had just gone through tonight, the introduction and the intro. And then before we meet again next week, just read uh, principle one and two. They're not, they're not long. And you will, you will begin to see that clearly our founding fathers believed that God's hand was in the establishment of this land and that the constitution they felt was really divine. It was struck off by the hand of God and the principles that they put in uh, of these documents. So as we begin to study the 28 principles now, I hope that it will revive in you a faith in God's ability to still perform miracles and to scale insurmountable mountains that, you know, are ahead of us as we're worried about our nation, as we're worried about our rising generation and, and, and the ability that God has always had to step in and heal the situation and heal the land. Uh, let's see that next slide. That beautiful is my most favorite uh, scripture in Second Chronicles seven fourteen, where he promises, look, if my people will just, uh, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, God doesn't say he needs a majority of people doing this before he'll, you know, intervene and, and justify the heavens to intervene. He just needs enough of us. And you know, it was only about 3% of the population during the Revolutionary War, only about 90,000 people that got involved in, and, and fought for, for freedom against uh, England. There was 3 million people in the Americas at the time that the Revolutionary War took place and only about 3% got involved. 3% were on the side of, of England, 3% for freedom. And then the rest were just, you know, just kind of ambivalent and going about their lives on their farms. So, you know, if we were to apply that model to today, that 3% model out of about 320 million that currently is our population in America, that would mean about 9.6 million people. If we, do you think we have 9.6 million people who love this country, who love freedom, who love their families, who love God and want to perpetuate and preserve this nation? I think we do, that are willing to stand up and get on that wall and say, okay, Lord, here am I, send me, what would you have me do? And especially, you know, we're all just kind of feeling churned up with the events of the world right now. Let's see our last slide, Hannah. This is our very first lesson in our cottage meeting series called Anchored in Hope, that if mother and father, grandma and grandpa are anchored in hope, it'll anchor everyone you love around you and it will have a rippling effect and the way we stay anchored in hope during troubling times is we look to God for our solutions, not government. We don't look to government to tell us what to do or what's going on or how they can solve our problems. We get on our knees and we bring our children and their grandchildren with us when we get on our knees and we open up the word of God and we become perfectionists as much as we can in prophecy. And we be as brilliant as we can in some of the basics of prayer and studying the word and serving and you know keeping those family close. Number two, we prioritize family time. We keep your children and your grandchildren close. And I will talk about how we've done that at different ages in our family, when our children were little, when they were middle and the teenagers and, and when they're bigs, when they're out of the home. Uh, and, and we'll share uh, examples of how we've done that. And we, I'd also love to hear how you have prioritized family time, because that's when you can teach them, you know, about God, that you can teach them about the miracles of America and how God had, you know, uh, had the backs of our founding fathers and mothers and how he will be there for us now. And that's why, number three, it's so important that we study the Constitution from the viewpoint of the founding fathers so we know what works and so we know what we need to go back to so we can have the same kind of success. And then ultimately, as you learn these things, as you're teaching them to your children, as you're regularly going to God and consulting him for your solutions and for deliverance, 
you will put on your heart what you can do, what you can do within the four walls of your home, what you can do out in your communities, in your schools, who, what kind of candidates you can support. Maybe you should run for office. I do have to bear witness to you that the most important work Al and I do, and we have, you know, ran for office, we have walked the halls of Congress, we have testified, we have spoken around the country, but the most impactful work that we have done have been within the four walls of our home and showing up our children because they are going to be the rising generations that will be on the front lines in defending, you know, these principles of liberty and freedom and God and family and faith. And so if you do nothing more than just make some changes within yourself and within your marriage and with your, within your children, when I began to learn these principles of liberty and I began to come home and teach them to my children, it changed my marriage. Al and I now teach together. We, we weren't doing this 20 years ago, but these principles of liberty changed our marriage. And then it changed the way we taught our children. And I wish I could tell you some of the things our kids are doing. I mean, they very easily could fall into that Black Lives Matter narrative that is just, you know, they've been bombarded with in schools and universities. But they have taken the stand for freedom and liberty because they learned it in the homes. So I promise you, as you do this, as you stand up, you have the courage so, to push back and, and to speak. You actually know. You're taking see how God will bless you and bless your family and bless your community and ultimately bless this nation. So thank you so much. God bless America. God bless you for being here tonight.